Good morning, everyone. You're listening to The Sci-Files, an exposure segment featuring Michigan State University student research. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Today, we're here with Nikki McLaurin. Nikki, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, thanks for having me here. I'm a second year PhD student in the Information and Media program within the Communication Arts and Sciences College. Very nice. So what is your research involved with then? So I go from a media psychology perspective on a lot of issues, but I specifically focus on health and risk issues and how they're communicated in narratives and other mass media messages. What does that mean? That means a lot of times the media, we are in a society where there's messages and all around, right? Entertainment, we have advertisements, we have radio, and a lot of times those are communicating things about our health or other risky issues. And so I specifically look at how the way they're communicated influences how you think about the issue. And how do you analyze that? So we do that from a variety of methods. Sometimes we interview people, sometimes we survey, we do experiments. A lot of times it's just constructing these messages based on theory and then testing their impact and seeing what occurs from it. What specific experiments have you participated in in the past? So, yeah, that's a good question. I've done different, a lot of times right now, I'm actually really passionate about entertainment and the type of entertainment messages that are out there because it's a very, um, it's a type of media that's widely consumed, right? And people don't really think about the impact it can have on your normal life, but it does have a huge impact. And so lately I've been studying how entertainment messages end up influencing people's vaccine perceptions, their sleep perceptions, a whole bunch of other different health-related issues. Are there any particular influencers on social media that you've looked at that have spread either the information or misinformation of work that you're looking at? So, yes, there is. I will give the caveat that I don't study social media a lot, which is, I think, kind of rare in my field. Um, But there are definitely things such as Jenny McCartney, who has promoted this anti-vaccine movement a lot in her work, I believe. But honestly, I don't study it that much, so I can't give too much insight on that. To clarify, you study the media like television and radio, right? So, yeah, that's... More specifically, I study entertainment a lot, but I also study things like public service announcements or different, any type of message that gets communicated either through the internet or the radio or television, things like that. It, we just have so many different types of sub, okay, we just have so many different types of researchers doing different things that social media itself is this own bubble that I've yet to infiltrate. What form of media, then, do you think has been the most influential when it comes to spreading these different messages? The majority of work in our field that looks at these type of messages tend to look at television and the impact television has, specifically um, what we call lowbrow television, so just the regular TV you watch every time when you're hanging out with your kids or you're hanging out with your significant other. But there's also been a lot of other research done on radio and video games and... Yeah, it just goes on. There's a whole bunch. I'd say TV's the the main one. There are so many ways that you can analyze even just the television. There are commercials, there are TV shows and movies. How do you choose what to specifically look at without feeling like you're losing the rest of the content from the other things? So that's a really good question. I think especially because in today's environment, 
a lot of young people specifically watch online streaming channels, right, where the commercials necessarily aren't there as much. And that's definitely changed how people are watching television, which is something that other people study in the department as well. I would say it depends on your real research question. So my research question going into these things is, A, what kind of content is being out there? And B, what kind of effect does it have? So for the vaccine project I'm on right now, we are actually going through all the entertainment storylines that have been out in the past since 2000 and on and trying to code them, which means just watch them and write and analyze what kind of information is being portrayed. And then the second part is then using that information to create entertainment messages that we test to see how that ends up influencing their subsequent beliefs. You're creating the messages. Yes, that's a part of it. How do you even get the message across then to the general audiences versus other media entertainers? So how do we actually insert our messages within the entertainment for people to see? Yeah, because I feel like, and not even to sound rude, your message would be just one out of many other thousands that are constantly promoted on not only just television, but on all of the rest of the different forms of media. So how do you actually know that it's actually making an impact? Yeah, so there's a lot of different researchers and collaborators across the nation who actually work with the entertainment industry one-on-one to try to integrate these messages. So there's been previous studies where they've had these large campaigns where, for example, for organ donation, they will insert that type of message within multiple different TV shows to hopefully accumulate a message, and then they'll track it based on, for example, how many people sign up to become an organ donator once they do their license or things like that. We also... um, new researchers have started looking at other means because that is really hard to accomplish and it does require connections that a lot of times we don't have. So we've turned to social media as well to see how these messages are being communicated and if people take these messages from television and then tweet about it or talk about it and create conversation that then infiltrates their lives beyond just the screen. Do you feel like it's most effective to go to those people that work in the television or media industry tell them the messages, and then they're able to incorporate it into the shows or whatever? That's the dream, definitely, to try to get that done. Is it feasible? Not so much. So that's why a lot of my work is cataloging and seeing what is out there and seeing what the impact is in the hopes that they will see it and hopefully change their messages. How do people believe you since you're not specifically a vaccine researcher, like not a scientist studying vaccinations and things like that, but you're studying the effects of it, like with the media, and you have a valid argument against it. How do people take you as a credible source, basically? So when we study this topic, we're not necessarily trying to say that we're the experts of vaccines. A lot of times the information that we talk about is coming from more reputable organizations or communities that are standing behind these facts. We then take that, though, and study the ways and how it's communicated actually influences if people believe the message or not. And so there's definitely different message features where you can highlight certain information over others. You can present it in a certain way or what we call a certain frame that influences how it's perceived. And so that's really what we study and say, you are saying the same information, but people are perceiving it in two different ways depending on how you communicate it. There are many false claims out there about science, such as climate change, that it's not real and things like that, even though there's a lot of data behind it that it's real. 
if there are people that influence the media and tell them the message that's happening, and if there's research behind it, why are these messages basically fake news that vaccine that vaccinations should occur, that climate change isn't real? Like, how is that still happening when there's people there supposedly to tell the message that's supposed to be happening? There goes there's a lot that goes into that, right? Of course, there's a ton of fake news and a lot of false information, specifically with vaccines tied to autism, for example, that it causes autism. And so a lot of people, yeah, have that same sentiment. They, there's tons of truth out there. We know it doesn't cause autism. Why don't they believe it? And the short answer is, is people aren't rational decision makers. And I think risk, there's a lot of people, for, for example, in the criminal justice department that study risk decision making. And it's a very common finding that you have two different things going on in your brain, right? You have the, the knowledge or what we call cognition, and then you have your emotions and your feeling, which we call affect. And when someone comes out and says vaccine can cause autism, all of a sudden you're really scared and you have that fear and you're afraid of your child who you love getting autism. And so that oftentimes will override any subsequent information you get because you're too afraid or your affect is too strong in this case. It just goes to show that we're becoming a fear-based society, unfortunately. You could say that. I, I guess I'm a little bit more optimistic in that these are probably infiltrated a lot of the decisions in our daily life. We just don't think about it on such a grand scheme of vaccines. That's a very hot topic, so it seems like a big thing. I think we let emotions guide our decisions a lot of times and a lot of different behaviors. But this is definitely, I mean, you can see the same effect happen with things like terrorism and things, um, any crime and violence in the media, for example, a lot of times these are issues where that affective component of the decision overrides a lot of the other cognitive information you're getting. And I would argue that that is a problem within our today's society, unfortunately. Once they hear an idea that it doesn't matter if it was true or false, they will cling on to that idea until who knows when. And I think it's really unfortunate. Yeah, I definitely agree. And that's actually so the reason I'm interested in vaccines as a whole or I'm interested in vaccines as a whole. And I look at it from a lot of different angles. And so a part of me, it's really hard to not just think these people don't get it. They just don't understand. They're kind of idiots, that kind of sentiment. But that's why a lot of my research actually lately has been targeted to understanding why these people believe what they believe and the different reasons they have for not getting their child vaccinated and it helps humanize them a little as well that they're not actually bad people they're trying to do what's best you just have this influx of information and they don't know how to navigate it and so that's a part of what we're doing as well this kind of reminds me of the slogan of the show the truth is in the science and going off of them why are people i don't know if you know this but why are people afraid of science sometimes like even if you're not a scientist there are ways that you can understand it and how come whenever we try to give them facts and say, like, oh, vaccines do not cause autism, and we have the papers and everything. Like, why are people so afraid of that? I think it goes back to kind of that affective component as well, and that when it's easy to see other people say, oh, yeah, it doesn't cause autism, you're fine. But when you're thinking about your life and your decision and you having to make that, it can be a really scary ordeal, and just trusting someone that you don't know and that and it's a lot of times are using words that you don't understand to make those decisions can be really scary. And so I think that's why if you look at the anti-vaccination or vaccine opposition movement going on right now, a lot of it started by these moms 
banding together and talking to each other and sharing their personal experiences that are outside of science, per se. And so this issue then becomes something about being a good mom or those factors versus just the actual science behind it. Nikki, I think you're bringing up some really great points. Some people might now be tuning in. Could you please catch them up a little and tell them what is your thesis? So I study how health and risk communication is communicated through different media messages, specifically narratives, and the social impact it has, such as people's perceived social norms or beliefs about different issues. I think that's really interesting because as I grew up, I've noticed that a lot of educational channels that I used to watch have moved away from pure educational programming to these reality TV shows that in my opinion, don't really add any value to the to the channel. Why do you feel like these educational programs and channels specifically have moved away from that peer education? The answer to that kind of has to go into the history of media broadcast in the United States. And so very briefly, you can just view it as the United States is really unique compared to the rest of the world and that our television networks, for example, really became privatized from the start and very early. And so there's not been a lot of public broadcasts, which means a lot of government influence, if you want to get down to it, who tend to support those educational television shows and programs and whatnot. And so it used to be that the government required even private networks to dedicate time to show these type of content. That regulation has waned in recent years, I think most people would say, and so they're not really upholding that anymore. But I think that's why you haven't seen as many educational programs right now because a lot of the networks we watch are private, which is why I specifically study entertainment television as we think of it since that is what's prolific in the United States. I would argue that we're starting to reach the end of the age of television. Where do you think it's going to move on afterwards? That's a great question, and I think something that we don't even really know. I think there's been a lot of online television networks. For example, uh, there's people who specifically create programs and shows for specific populations that end up getting broadcasted. I don't necessarily think, though, that the television that we know it today is waning or that it's going away. I mean, you can look at Game of Thrones finale, which had 43 million watchers or whatever on the last finale and so we clearly still have people going to these uh, large networks that have been producing these shows for years and they're actually starting to get into the streaming grain pretty heavily now too and so it's just a little bit different but we don't actually think that changes the processes and the effects that we've been finding. I'm going to highlight that word streaming like that's like Netflix and Hulu and all of them yes. and I recall that Hulu has commercials and they have promotional materials so do you think that these commercials and promotional materials are how people can get those messages across of whatever they want? It could be. So I, that it's definitely an area that I don't think there's been too much research on because it is so fast and, you know, there's a, a contentious relationship between advertisements, right? We know they're supposed to be there, but we don't like them. And we actually have some scholars in our college who specifically study that. But that's why I really find interesting these messages that we receive in the actual content that we don't really think about that are messages, but then still shape our reality outside of the television. And so that shape how we view the world. The educational content that's in this entertainment program is what we encounter in everyday life, right? It's things about 
these issues, for example, like vaccines or about alcohol consumption or drug use or things like that. And so they're relevant to us. And so they're in these entertainment storylines. So I look at how they're being portrayed and then the effects of them, hopefully when the impact of going and creating positive effects, but also so that when we know what they're getting from these entertainment messages, we can also counteract them other ways as well. Do you look at specific ages, like how certain things can target age groups? We have. I haven't done a ton of work with that, but there's definitely, I think, differences between children programs and what they learn versus adults and whatnot. But generally, we find that people are influenced by television no matter what age they are, which is good for me and my job. <laughs> but One theory that people have is television will then move into the realm of virtual reality. How will that affect the influence of these messages when people are going to be able to be exposed to them directly, at least mentally, from what they can perceive with their eyes? Yeah, so we have in the entertainment literature or the entertainment education literature, we think that the effect of entertainment happens because two things, really. A, they get really involved in the narrative or the storyline, what we call transportation. So they're very into it. They forget about what's happening. They're focused on the story. The second thing is character involvement. So how much you like the character, you feel like you're similar to the character, how much your character is your friend. We all have that character who we just love and we don't want bad things to happen to them. So with this transition into more, for example, virtual reality, those things are going to be heightened, right? You're going to be more immersed. You're going to feel more as the character would, and you're going to be engaging in these behaviors. So we would think the effects would increase. However, it's still so new, and there are so many studies that are currently going on about it that I don't want to definitely say one way or another. I think that's a good point that you bring up, Danny, that virtual reality is another way, and that's the future. And that you, Nikki, said that people become more immersed, that their uh, senses are heightened and everything. And I remember seeing a movie where people were so immersed in it, like it, it became like their lives. And I hope that it doesn't take over people's lives like that. But I do know already that people are already obsessing over video games and things like that. And I remember that you had said that you study video games as well. And how do you think messages in the media are perceived with video games compared to television? To answer that question, I think that instead of just viewing television narratives, for example, in isolation, we're seeing an integration of many more medias at the same time, right? So you watch a TV show, but it doesn't stop there. You might also engage in social media about it, or you might also talk to your friend about it or form a group. And so all these different narratives are now being crafted around this first narrative you had and slowly changing the message, right? And so... What that will entail, I'm not sure. I do think that entertainment responds to that really well, right? We monitor social media and we look at how people are perceiving things and that can change the message, but where it's actually going, who knows? I'm hearing you say narratives a lot. Are you talking about the message that the show or commercial or whatever is trying to deliver or are you looking at how the audience is perceiving that message? To answer your question, I think that for the most part, we look at narrative as the actual message narrative, the storyline message. And so there's a lot of definitions, for example, of what a narrative is. It has a beginning, middle, and end, and covers a conflict, for example. But what we end up studying is how people perceive those messages and the effects that it has. And so I think it kind of goes hand in hand that there might be a message that was put out there, but people perceive it differently than what you expect, which is why we study how it's perceived. 
Thanks, Nikki. Can you tell us a little bit about when a narrative was delivered, but the response was different from expected? Yeah, so there is a seminal study in our field where they were looking at organ donation storylines within entertainment. And so they were trying to get people to think about organ donation and also sign up to be organ donations. And so in the storyline, they had the character go through it, but to have conflict, which you tend to need in entertainment to gain interest, they introduced something about a black market and how the character was worried about that. So then when they ended up looking at the audience reception, rather than think about the organ donation storyline and how being an organ donor is important, all they remembered was there's a black market for organs, which is actually false. I mean, there might be, but it's not so prominent that that should be a fear when you're signing up to be an organ donor. And so it ended up having a boomerang effect, right? People were more afraid of becoming an organ donor than actually excited to become one from this story. And so I think that's an example where the message ended up being perceived a lot differently than its intention. And how do they fix or clarify that miscommunicated message? So one way is to insert a message at the very end of the entertainment episode that clarifies the message because the problem with any message entered into entertainment is a lot of times it's not very explicit or it's not very out there. And so they'll have, for example, I think you guys are probably familiar with little what we call epilogues at the end of the episode where you have the character come on screen and say, if you know anyone who might be suffering these signs, call 1-800-blah-blah-blah. And so they have these messages to help clarify the message and say, hey, we don't think there's an actual organ black market out there, but we want you to become organ donors. Here's the phone number to call. Did watching TV throughout your life influence you to actually go into this type of research? Definitely. So while I was doing my undergrad, I was actually a biology major. And during the summer, I had this major freak out of, I don't want to be a biology major, but I don't know what I want to be. And at the time, I was binge watching Criminal Minds, which is a really popular crime television show. And they had this character, JJ, who I just thought was the coolest person on television. And if you don't know, they actually create fictional biographies for characters online that you can look up. And I found out that she majored in public relations and sociology. I looked up, my college had those exact same degrees. So on a whim, I just thought, I'm going to do it and see what it's about. And I loved it. And that ended up bringing me to Michigan State, where I'm studying information and media, because I had this question of, if I could make such a huge life decision based on something I saw on television that wasn't even meant to try to communicate anything to me, what does that mean for issues where they actually are communicating things? Or how does this actually influence people on a large scale? So I got into this research here, and I found that television has a huge impact on so many different things. It influences how we think about social issues, health issues. It makes us learn how to talk with other people and deal with tragedies. And so that's really what made me think of this as an interesting area to study and what I do today. I think that's really interesting. You went from a biology major, you saw criminal minds, and you were so influenced that you switched your major and you weren't even looking for them. And I think it's really important to, to think about all of this. How was it for you to switch your major? Like, Did you feel like you were out of place whenever you came to the media college, or did you feel like you belonged over there? And What, what was it like? I think it was a pretty seamless transition um, because I was so 
interested once I realized what happened to me and that I made that decision based on it all of a sudden I became so enthralled with how does entertainment do this and I think a lot of people put a lot of weight on newspapers right in these traditional forms of what we call persuasion they think that's what influences them but entertainment's this media that people consume for hours upon hours and yet it's having the same effect and so that's why I thought it was really interesting to study and I um, didn't think it was a hard transition because a lot of times we're using a lot of the same methods I mean, not the same methods as in we're not actually doing things but it we still have the rigor of trying to use a scientific method to determine these um, rules or in society about what we're studying for the final question what are some ways that you have communicated your research to the public I think the biggest thing is going to conferences around uh, the nation and the world, really, and communicating not only with people in our field, but people from different areas. And so, for example, I was just at a conference where we had legislature with industry people, and we were all looking at the same issue. And so you can communicate that way. I think most recently, I was just able to talk at Communication on Tap, which in Lansing is a really great event that tries to give our give us a platform to talk to the community, engage in the community about our research. And so I just did that. And how was that experience? It was amazing. I think I was surprised about how many communi- uh, community members actually came out and how interested they were in what we had to say. I think because I study entertainment and media, it's something that people are familiar with. So it, they already feel like they know a little bit about it. And so that fosters a lot of interesting conversation and lets me see what people are thinking about my issue outside of just how I think about it. That's incredible, Nikki. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us today in the studio. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Nikki. Thank you to all of our listeners that joined us this week. And remember, the truth is in the science. Any comments and questions can be directed to scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll see you all next week on Sci-Files.